Port Locke, Alaska is a rugged coastal settlement on the southern edge of the Kenai Peninsula, known for its rich resources, dark history, and deadly lore. This once thriving community that supported families and lucrative industry is now nothing more than a ghost town. The only evidence of human civilization is rotting timber-framed homes, derelict coal mines, and a rusted, defunct cannery. But if Port Locke was such a prosperous place, why did the townsfolk leave? Fleeing in droves, escaping en masse? Well, the question isn't really why. We know why. You see, Port Locke has been settled and deserted over and over again since the Spanish conquerors first came to its shores in the 1700s. They came, took the land and the resources, enslaved the native people, and claimed the area for their own. But it wasn't long before the Spanish were back on their ships, fleeing the horrors of Port Locke. Next were the British. Nathaniel Portlock sailed into the peninsula in 1786 and established the area as a British conquest. The area was abundant in natural resources, and on paper, it should have been a riotous success. And although the land and the bay were fruitful, the area was harsh, hostile, and extremely dangerous. Not just because of the weather and the environment, but because of something menacing and sinister lurking in the dense, dark woods. The stories are all the same, really. Describing a monster, 15 to 20 foot tall, not a bear nor any other woodland creature, but rather a species unlike any other. A massive, putrid-smelling, almost human-like beast. Pure muscle, covered in thick, tawny hair. Those who survive an encounter are lucky. For most, are found dead, shredded, ripped apart like paper dolls. Portlock has a horrible history of hunters trekking into the woods and never being heard or seen ever again. Or worse, ending up in the lagoon in pieces. Not mauled, cut, or dismembered, but rather twisted, wrenched, and torn apart in a way no earthly creature could possibly manage. Mysterious fires are also reported to erupt out of nowhere. People lose their sense of time and space in the area. And when the creature is near, they begin to feel uncontrollably nauseous and sick. But the area is so abounding and plentiful, people have always come back to it, hoping this time things would be different. In the early 1900s, a cannery was established in the area. This brought work, which meant families, a school, a church, a sawmill, a booming community. The U.S. Postal Service even established a post office in town. 
Port Lock was the new up and coming fishing location of the peninsula. But with the growth came more mysterious and unexpected disappearances and even more deaths. Bodies began to float lifelessly in the lagoon once more and a horrific attack took place while a villager was out cutting firewood. He was out in the woods when all of a sudden he heard a movement in the trees. Without warning, something hit him from behind. He turned around to see a behemoth of a beast begin to attack him. The creature was on him, pounding him, savagely beating him. His dogs attacked the brute, and he finally ambled away, leaving the villager clinging to life. He managed to make his way safely back to town to tell the villagers what he had experienced. He knew it wasn't a bear, but he also knew it wasn't like anything he had ever seen before. He died of his injuries, and all the villagers knew that this tragedy wasn't just some freak accident. The attacks, deaths, and disappearances became so commonplace, the workers of the cannery refused to go to and from work without armed guards. And by 1950, the town had been totally deserted, left to whatever creature called it home. You see, the question isn't, can Portlock be a successful, thriving town? It has been many times over. The question is, can a community survive whatever is lurking in the woods? Welcome to episode 37 of the West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. We have all heard stories of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, but for the most part, Bigfoot is just a mysterious, reclusive, ape-like creature that could be dangerous but primarily shies away from people, longing to live quietly in the woods all alone. However, in the small fishing village of Portlock, Alaska, Nuntanag, as he is known, is not solitary or reserved at all. In fact, he is so murderous, he has pushed away the natives from the area to nearby Nanwalik. But the problem is, Nan Wallach cannot support the growing community. 
the indigenous people of Nanwalik survive by the practice of subsistence, which relies on hunting, gathering, fishing, and living in harmony with your environment. They need to return to Portlock so they can grow and live off of its rich resources. But is it safe? Will Nantinak allow it? Well, that is exactly what a small group of villagers and a production crew from Los Angeles set out to discover. Ash Naderhoff is a survivalist expert and instructor. His family left the comforts of modern living to live among the indigenous people of North America so they could further learn how to live off the land and respect their surroundings. Ash, along with fellow villagers Tommy, Keith, DJ, and a bear guardsman named Kyle, were the team sent to Portlock to see if moving the village back was a viable option. Their experiences were filmed by a small production team and then shared to the world in a documentary series on Discovery Plus called Alaskan Killer Bigfoot. Today, Ash is with us to tell us how he experienced local lore in real life. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch. Episode 36, Nunton, The Alaskan Killer Bigfoot. Um, I'm not native. I didn't grow up in the community. Um, I'm white. I came in from the outside, and I've just been really fortunate that the elders have been able to tell me the stories, tell me the history and the lores and different things. And it's something that when you first hear it, it's like, well, I don't know about that. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty outlandish. That's pretty out there. Everybody knows of Bigfoot. Um, Bigfoot's had record um, reports all the way down to Peru and the Aztecs and Mexico, all up the coast on both sides of the coast. I don't really know of anyone who hasn't heard of a Bigfoot. So coming into the village and hearing these stories of Bigfoot's throwing rocks at you and like knocking on trees and then um, hearing of Portlock and a murderous Bigfoot was something I'd never heard of or encountered at all before. So something completely new to me. And I've been a Christian for a long time. I definitely believe in the whole like spiritual realm and all that. But I don't know if I believed in this big, magical, hairy beast running through the woods, killing people that seemed pretty out there at first until you started really talking with them and just seeing the passion that they had about this and hearing the stories and the experiences, you kind of knew that something was up. It wasn't long, though, before Ash began to have unexplainable experiences in the woods. Only a few weeks after moving to the village, Ash was walking a neighbor's dog in the remote woods when he suddenly realized he wasn't alone. We were walking on this trail and when we were walking, something started throwing rocks at me and they were, they weren't real big. They were little pebbles. Um, I mean, size of a dime maybe. And it was big enough where I was like, Hey, you know, like why is somebody like, I thought it was a kid throwing rocks at me, but I was looking and it was coming out of this devil's club and devil's club is super thick, super dense, horribly prickly, um, plants and they're really big like four foot tall and if they poke you they leave these little nasty things in your skin these little black stickers in there that fester and they get all gross you don't walk the devil's club and it's super thick in this patch there's no way kids are like in there so I sit and I watch for a minute and the dog's kind of freaking out and he's not my dog I didn't know him very well but you could tell that he was kind of like antsy and something was wrong 
And I saw the branches up there kind of moving around a little bit, but I didn't think too much of it. So I come back and I'm talking to one of the elders whose dog I had. He's like, man, that was Bigfoot. Bigfoot's known for throwing rocks. And I was like, what? No way. So I thought that was kind of cool to experience something, then hear them say, you know, hey, that's kind of what we've been telling you about. Still not a huge believer, but it was like, I don't know, kind of a little bit of proof, I guess. There's no way a person was up where these rocks were coming from. It was just a horrible, horrible spot where it just, you'd have to have some pretty thick skin, like a bear or something to be in there. This experience was incredible. Unlike anything Ash had ever experienced before. As a professional survivalist, he was baffled, curious, and desperate to find out more. It was exciting to get confirmation from the village elders that it was Bigfoot, but Ash wasn't completely sold yet. We were up at what we call First Lake up there. It was probably about six, seven months later, my wife and I were up there. We were kind of doing some some swimming and some fishing and stuff. And after a little bit, a couple people from the village came in. And they were starting to fire and starting to cook up there. So we had a bunch of fish. I'm like, hey, you want to have dinner with us? I'm like, yeah, for sure. Remember, this is Alaska. In Alaska, life works off of daylight. It works off of tides. It doesn't work off of a clock, especially when you're in these remote native villages that work off of substance and live off of substance. So this is probably 11 o'clock at night. It's not like a normal, you know, five, six type thing. It's pretty late at night. And um, to say the least, it's getting close to what I've kind of known now more as like twilight hour type thing that like 2 a.m. type thing. Didn't know anything about that back at the time. It's like 11 p.m. They're like, hey, you guys want to stick around and have some dinner? Like, yeah, it sounds incredible. We caught all these awesome fish. We'd love to throw some on the fire. You know, this is going to be such a great time. So we're sitting there and then we hear another Honda kind of coming up the trail and a few more people come in. And it's Tommy, who you know from the show. They're getting ready to start this fire, and Tommy's a big believer of Bigfoot and of all this paranormal stuff. So he has this, like, ghost hunting stuff with him. All these little, like, EMF reader things and, like, these weird scanning things and these, like, bionic ears. And I know the bionic ear because I'm a hunter. So I put this bionic ear on as we're hearing these, like, weird sounds in the woods, and people are saying that something sounds like a whistle. So I put this bionic ear on him, aiming it right up at this spot. And this is right where the rocks were thrown at me a few days ago. So I'm a little bit interested already because it's like literally the same spot. And there's this whistle and I have the bionic ear right on it. It's just the most incredibly crisp, clear whistle I've ever heard. And I'm like, wow, that was weird. And like four of us are looking right up at this spot. And this creature, it's big. I'm talking not nine feet, not 10 feet. There's something big, not a bear. But at first thought was a bear stands up. I mean, the hair on the arm of it's like nine, 10 inches. You can see an arm pretty clear and how it stood up is pretty thick and branchy and stuff in there. It was clearly on two feet and you could see it take like two or three steps before it disappeared. I mean, I can describe the color almost perfect. You could see that you couldn't see a face. It was in the branches, but you could see like this perfect arm and body and it took like a two, three steps and was gone. And we're just like standing there dumbfounded. Like that was like, okay, there's something going on here. You know, like I've seen, I've seen black bear and polar bear and brown bear and white black bear and cinnamon black. This was not a bear. This was something different. As frightening and as unsettling as the experience was, it was also a turning point. Ash wasn't alone this time. His wife was there, other villagers, and they had technology back up and verify what they were seeing with their eyes. Was it Bigfoot? 
who knew? But what Ash did know is that it definitely was not a bear or any other large animal he had ever encountered before. As I mentioned earlier, the town of Nanwalik does not have enough resources to support the villagers' way of life. So the village elders assembled a small group to head to Portlock to gauge the viability of returning to the area. Their experiences were captured by a team of cameramen. They were expecting, at best, some evidence of Bigfoot. What they got was so much more. We went out there to see if we could make Portlock safe and have the bull again. We didn't know what we were going to experience. We didn't know if it was going to be some stories of old or something still going on out there. We realized right when we got there that there was something crazy, something supernatural, and something that was going to take a lot to try to figure out and understand. We started scrambling. We had a satellite phone with us, and we started calling in as many experts as we could possibly think. I mean, we ended up calling in a demonologist. We called in mediums. We called in all these different experts. Everybody gave us all these opinions and thoughts that all led us to led us to the same conclusion that what we're dealing with out there is obviously supernatural. The team spent their days scouring Portlock for evidence of Bigfoot and also to see what life would be like if the villagers returned. Was there enough food, fresh water, fish in the bay? Could they learn to live in harmony with Nantinuk? In hopes to learn more about the creature, the team called in Bigfoot expert Ron Moorhead. Ron Moorhead has dedicated his career to researching Bigfoot and is the producer of the Sierra Sounds, a recording of Bigfoot vocalizations recorded deep in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the 1970s. He is the preeminent expert on Bigfoot. Ron told them that Bigfoot doesn't like groups. They prefer you to be alone. So one night, Ash decided to go into the woods by himself and see if he could capture evidence of Bigfoot's activity. He left his backpack at the bottom of the tree stand so he wouldn't be tempted to shine a bright light or pull a gun on the creature. Armed with nothing but his camera and years of survivalist skills, Ash sat in wait for Bigfoot. I had an experience in episode five. I actually watched it this morning. Um, It was the first time I've actually watched the experience all the way through since the show aired. I've tried to watch it a few times and it's still brutally raw. I had an experience over 20 minutes long out there. Um, I climbed a tree stand in the middle of the night thinking it was gonna be a good idea. And it was only a couple minutes into it that I started hearing some knocking on the tree, some trees around me. And then I heard a metal chain not like a small chain, not like a necklace, like a big boat chain being drugged through the woods. It was really loud and it was like right below me. And at one point I could hear it on the ladder that I was up on the tree stand. I had a night vision camera on me and I was shining it around trying to capture what it was. Um, We had had Ron Moorhead out there, I believe it was the night before. And he had made it very clear how white light scares off Bigfoot. He doesn't like it. We've had a lot of experiences. Every time something happens, we put our lights on it, it dies instantly. I had made it very clear whatever happens that night, I'm not turning on my white light unless I feel like I'm deadly in danger and I'm not gonna draw a weapon. I was out there to try to communicate, to try to see if I could figure out if there was something out there, what it was and what it wanted for us. What happened out there was nothing that I expected. It was absolutely the craziest experience of my life and I haven't had a full night's sleep since then. I was sitting up in there and it wasn't a windy night. The whole tree started shaking at one point you can hear two, I, 
I'm going to say creatures. I'll, I'll say why in a minute. I hear two of them walking around below me. Big, massive, huge. I'm trying to put the camera on as best I can, freaking out. I mean, when you're 15 feet up a tree stand, there's not too many ways out. There's not many exits. And when you have two possibly Bigfoot that have known for murdering people walking around you, you purposely left your flashlight and your weapons at the bottom of the ladder in your backpack so that you would say, no matter what happens, I'm out here to be safe. You know, I'm not here to show you that I'm not here to harm you. You know, I'm not here to try to communicate. So after about 15 minutes, I finally heard him a little bit away from the ladder and I thought this is my chance to get down. As Ash climbed down the tree stand and collected his bag, viewers of the show noticed something that Ash at the time didn't, an ominous whisper. After viewers pointed it out to Ash, he went back to have a listen for himself. It's very low rumble. People ask me what it sounds like all the time. I say a mix of an animal and an alien. I don't know what an alien sounds like, but no human and no animal can make the sound that I heard. And you can barely, barely pick up the lower end of it. Sorry, I put on my backpack and I started walking down and right below me is the creepy tree, this tree that I was out there to watch where all the activity that we've been experiencing was going on. I put my back up against the creepy tree and something massive walked out behind from the tree and stood right next to me. The moss is about a foot thick out there. It's really deep and my whole body shifted down to one side. And I felt another one on the other side of me. I started getting this weird, quaint, queasy, queasy, thick, sick ceiling feeling again that I got at like on the beginning of the show. And right then I heard the whisper again. I heard it loud that time and it was right in my ear. I could feel the tickle on the back of my freaking neck right there. I was bawling at the time, just completely I, shook, completely shook. And all my batteries died at the same freaking time. First, the battery on my camera started going out, which was pretty common. We found whenever a lot of activity was happening. But then the flat batteries, my flashlight and my headlamp started going out. And that's when I'm like, fuck it. Nope, nope, done, done. All I can't, I'm, I'm out. Like, I, I came in peace, you know, I've been cool. But if you're not, yeah, I, I was, I couldn't do it at that point. So I just grabbed my stuff and I actually forgot a few things out there. But I grabbed a couple things and I started getting out of the woods. And I was like, crap, which way did I go? Because I'm kind of like, there's just woods everywhere and I've been turned around. So I look and my camera just died. And it was almost like a scene from Jurassic Park. It was just getting light enough enough at this time. It's Alaska um, in the summertime, so it gets light pretty early. And the you just barely see the trees and in the sky above it. You know, just starting to get that that glow. And you could see of all the trees, two of them were just moving a little bit. And then as they were getting closer, two more trees were moving. This is like 15 foot, 20 foot tall. And it got to the point where it was about 50 feet in front of me. I, they were coming from the last branches. These trees were splitting, the branches are coming. Something big's coming right at me. I had the camera on, it, unfortunately the battery was dead at that point. It turned into a ball of light, about the size of basketball, started floating around. It, it was still about 50 feet from me. It didn't get really close and it disappeared, turned into a flash, like a little flash from a camera, like a little ball of lightning and was gone. Another evening, the team of villagers asked a production crew to stay at camp so they could investigate without the cumbersome cameras and crew. 
They took their walkie-talkies, handheld camcorders, and the audio tech so they could get clear sound. The team at camp stayed in touch remotely via the walkie-talkies. Kind of said, you know, we're hearing a bunch of stuff in the woods here, like stuff's not right. Can you guys put up a thermal drone and just kind of see if you can see what's going on? The first thing they saw, um, Alex, the director of photography for the whole show, incredibly talented dude. He's like, hey guys, Ash, man, you guys, there's something's wrong. He's like, there's like this weird funnel coming off the mountain. He said, I don't know how to describe it. It's bright, it's red. There's this big funnel, like it's like pulsing into you guys. Something's wrong, you guys need to get out of there. And then Brian came on, he's like, get out, get out now. Something's falling, you guys, on thermal daylight. It wasn't a bear, something big was out there. And it was coming right at us. And Brian's like, get the fuck out of there now, guys. Get out, get out. And we took off and got out of there. And we saw the thermal of what was up. It was big and it was coming right at us. The point of this is that funnel that he saw, it was the weird funnel of energy um, that pulsing into us. I believe it was the next day, Polly, the medium came out. I'm not a fan of believer mediums. I don't know all the different stuff at this point, you know? So I would say, Polly, I'm a skeptic. I'm going to be open-minded, you know? I'm not going to, I know the universe is a big place. I'm not going to come in closed-minded. I'm not really a believer. So if I have a question, I'm going to ask it, you know? We were walking and she we were going right by the spooky tree, right by that spot. She said, you know, let's go down here. That spot feels closed off. And I said, well, why, you know, why is it closed off? And she says, I don't know, it's closed off. And I said, well, give me something here you know we flew you a long ways out here type thing and she's like there's just a weird energy there and i said well can you describe the energy she goes no how do you describe an energy so i don't know i'm not a medium how do you describe the energy she has a big funnel of energy just pulsing into right there she saw the same freaking funnel we saw the night before in the thermal drone like weird weird crap right portlock is a cornucopia of strange interconnections and multiple different people, cameras, or voice recorders all collected the same strange, unexplained phenomenons. We heard basketball games out there. We heard birds, which you'd expect to hear birds in Alaska, right? But not toucans. Like, weird stuff. You'd be sitting there and Kyle told us he heard a fridge door close with a bunch of, you could hear all the bottles and everything in the door. You'd be sitting there and hear a car door close. You know what a car door close sounds like. Car door close right next to you in the middle of nowhere. You'd hear sounds and they'd just be right there next to you. You'd look and there's nothing there. Like, I mean, all the time. The sounds became so normal that when someone heard something crazy, we didn't actually end up telling people most of the time because it was just, I don't know if you become accustomed to it or like numb to it, but it happens so much every day that it's just like, Oh, yeah, that's happening again. In Port Lock, all of your senses are constantly being assaulted, from catching putrid whiffs of Bigfoot to sudden uncontrollable nausea to seeing unexplained movement in the dense treetops to losing one's sense of time. The team would call it a time slip. Someone would head into the woods for a minute or two and return hours later, thinking that they had just left. Or they would report that they had been out in the woods all day, only to find that they had been gone a matter of minutes. When we went out there, we knew there was going to be skeptics. We knew that people were going to be picking the footage apart, especially people in the Bigfoot community. We never expected to go out there and 
just, you know, have people completely, you know, blindly accept what was going on. We wanted to make sure that we had cameras rolling, audio rolling pretty much all times to capture it. The team and production crew filmed 16 hours every day for 40 straight days. They lived in flimsy tents and had to cook their own meals and source and cut all their own firewood. They had no running water, no electricity, and the bathroom was a stretch of the beach affectionately called Shitgardia. Everyone had to pull their weight. It had to be a small crew because the resources were limited and the conditions so tough. It wasn't a glitzy Hollywood production. This was 40 days of unimaginable cold, wet, hurricane force winds and hard labor. Bigfoot was the goal, but first, you simply had to survive the elements. One of the most frustrating things, hands down, about the show is we're out there for 40 days shooting 16 plus hours a day, a minimum of two and up to four cameras shooting between one and three locations. And we have 842 minutes to tell the entire story, show the backstory, show what we were happening, make the storyline make sense and present it as a full eight, pa- eight episode package. There is no way to explain to show a half of what we experienced out there. We had so much where I'm just waiting when I saw it come out on TV, you know, I'm watching it with everybody else week by week. I'm just like, oh, babe, wait till you see what happens. Wait, ah, that's not, I can't believe that's not on there. How didn't they show that? Like, oh my gosh, me and Kyle are texting each other. Like, are you freaking kidding? Like that's barely the tip of the iceberg. On top of the limited time that the show had to cover all of the evidence and experiences of the team, They also had a lot of lost footage. Endless drained camera batteries, gear malfunctions, distorted images, and corrupted sound files. Absolutely zero reason for all the missed, lost, or damaged footage, other than perhaps that something did not want to be filmed. However, there were other times where technology was definitely on the team's side. Ron Moorhead was there. And he told us how white light scares off Bigfoot. We talked a little bit about that earlier. It's something we had experienced a lot. So he'd sent us um, some red flashlights and this red grid. We went out on this really foggy night and we set this red grid out in the fog. And if anything disrupted the fog or the grid or anything, you'd easily be able to tell, even if it was invisible or cloaked or whatnot. So we're sitting out there and the fog like starts getting manipulated and like the grid starts moving and you can see freaking clear as day there's this giant bigfoot looking shadowy thing walking through there where you weren't really supposed to do this um but i kind of just stepped back off camera just like i was like adjusting my footing and i went back behind the camera and took some pictures on my cell phone because it was just something i had to have because what we were seeing was incredible If you'd like to see the photo of Bigfoot's outline in the grid, head over to the West London Witch Instagram and Facebook. Ash was kind enough to share this incredible image with us. Capturing all of this evidence was awesome for the team, but there was also the serious possibility that it could have been angering the creature, poking the bear, so to speak. The more evidence the team collected, the more of a danger they possibly could pose to Nuntinug. We had found out, per, I don't know, about halfway through that we needed a separate tent for production. 
they were up kind of all hours of the night kind of you know checking footage charging cameras doing that type of stuff so we had to put up a second tent just a little couple feet away um for them and nobody really like slept in there per se but for safety reasons you know but kind of as long as someone was up we had walkies we kind of go but you know work between the two tents there and the cast was pretty tired we've been working all day so we were just going to bed one night we didn't have cameras rolling all the professional cameras are put away sound equipment's put away kind of you know it was, it was late at night we're going to bed and we're sitting there and something through not one rock not two rocks multiple rocks bigger than a basketball or tent from the beach this is like 50 feet away 60 feet away we were sitting in the tent and when the tent went down, we knew something was wrong. We knew we were being attacked. We knew this was different. This isn't what we'd experienced before. It's just totally different. So we get in the breed and we're yelling, you know, guns are out, stay the fuck away, stay back, stay back, guys. This isn't, we're not, we're not kidding. This isn't drill, keep production fucking back. You know, we need to get this area clear and safe before anything. We go outside and there are these giant freaking rocks on our tent. There are, we saw footprints everywhere out there. We caught as many as we could. They're always in crappy spots. You can't cast like in super thick moss. We caught got good video of a lot of them on there but the shocking thing of through this is the size of these rocks these rocks are the size of basketballs and bigger and they're covered in barnacles i remember brian um the producer and i went over and we picked one up each and they were like cutting our hands we took them and you couldn't take that rock and probably throw it far enough not to hit your feet it took everything we had to lift it. The power it has of something throw this thing with enough accuracy, not only to hit the tent, I believe it was going for the support. Something massive with superhuman strength would have had to have thrown those rocks. This was a clear sign to the team that Bigfoot wanted them gone. When we left, um, the very last thing we did is everybody got on a boat. We had the cabin all done, shut down, everything. We just had a big feast with the families that came out. Everybody came, cast crew, everyone. We got on a boat and we were leaving. And as we were leaving, we saw the cabin we built out there on fire. And we had already had like this weird phantom fire a few nights before that like we grabbed these buckets, we're running about this fire. So we're like, what the heck's going on? We rushed back, cabin on fire and what we found out there I would be in a lot of trouble if I told you. It's definitely where season two would pick up, but what we found was one of the craziest things that we found the whole time. Whatever happened that night on the beach was so incredible, so unbelievable, and so mystifying that Discovery Plus made the entire casting crew sign a non-disclosure agreement stating they wouldn't tell anyone the details of the fire until season two goes live. The team went out there with the hopes of re-establishing the town. They assumed they would run into bears and such, and perhaps even experience a little bit of the old legends. But they never expected to capture as much activity as they did. And Ash thinks this goes way beyond some unknown cryptid. He believes whatever is out there is totally supernatural, perhaps even paranormal. One of the elders on the show described Nuntanek as a demon. I assumed he meant this ironically, like he was such a menace, he was a demon. But Ash actually believes the elder was totally serious, that maybe this creature isn't just some misunderstood ape, but rather something that is purely 
evil. There's no way it's science doesn't prepare you for what happened out there. There's no textbook that describes the stuff we went through. Portlock is currently still uninhabited. The villagers of Nanwalik are in the same predicament. And it looks like the history of the area is continuing to repeat itself. But the team are not done investigating. They are desperate to get back to Portlock and figure out if there is a way that the villagers and Nuntinuk can coexist. Perhaps there might even be a season two of Alaskan Killer Bigfoot. If you'd like to stream every episode of the show, head on over to Discovery Plus. And don't forget to check out their fan Facebook page by the same name. It's a super active space where Ash and the cast share behind-the-scenes photos, clips, and have lively discussions about the awesome evidence they collected. Life in Alaska is hard at the best of times. And living in balanced unity with the land around you is even tougher. I hope that the villagers are someday able to return to Portlock so they can continue to grow, thrive, and prosper. Until then, the dense forest, dark lagoon, and treacherous bay belong to Nuntinuk. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Missionaid Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing.